Welcome to Knowing Nature. I'm your host, Victor. In this podcast, I speak with other environmental educators about their experiences, practices, and perspectives on helping people to reconnect with the natural world. Now, if you're a regular listener, you might have noticed that recently I've been reducing the frequency of episodes. And this is so that the number of episodes I put out is something which is a bit more sustainable for me. This is a one-person labor of love, and I'm hoping to also expand the range of materials I produce, but that requires a bit more time. So hopefully in the next month or two, I can get the podcast stabilized to around two episodes a month, plus more content on the YouTube channel and some more resources like lesson and activity ideas, which you can find on the website. But more about this particular episode. This episode came out of a recent weekend trip to Stratford-upon-Avon, famously the birthplace of one William Shakespeare. Maybe you've heard of him. Now, just over the river from the Royal Shakespeare Theatre, because of course he was a playwright, is another place called the Stratford Butterfly Farm, which, like the name suggests, is a butterfly farm. They produce butterflies for zoos and other displays, but they also have their own wonderful display of live butterflies from all over the world, as well as other invertebrates, reptiles, and amphibians. Now, I really do enjoy these displays. I find they give me this little taste of the tropics and a view of these wonderful beautiful creatures that I may never get to see in person. I've also always been a bit curious about where they get their butterflies from. After all, I find these enclosures in zoos here in the UK or in North America, but most of the butterflies in them come from tropical regions. So on this trip, I had a bit of a closer look at their website and found out that one of their suppliers is an organization called the Kipepeo Butterfly Project in Kenya. And learning more about this project and the ways in which it's benefited the forest habitat and the communities which surround it has really changed the way that I think about these butterfly displays and the way in which I look at them. To learn more about the project, I got in touch with them and spoke with Hussein Aden, project manager for the Kipepeo Butterfly Project and researcher with the National Museums of Kenya. Hussein and I spoke over a slightly dodgy internet connection, so please forgive any glitchiness in the audio quality. On with the episode. So here to talk with me about the Kaipepo Butterfly Project is um, Hussein. Welcome to the podcast, Hussein. It's your first time on the show. Would you be able to introduce yourself to to us? Yes, thank you, Victor. I am Hussein Abdullahi Aden working for National Museums of Kenya as a research scientist and also seconded as a project manager for the Kipepeo Butterfly Project. I've been in charge of this project for the last seven years. Kaipepo Butterfly Project, it's a project that works with communities that surround the Arabuko Sukoke Forest, which is a national park in Kenya, but it's part of a larger forest that stretches down into Tanzania. Is that correct? The project is based at Arabuko Sokoke Forest. Arabuko Sokoke Forest is an internationally recognized forest and also a UNESCO World Heritage Site. This forest is about 420 kilometers square, but what we have at the moment are fragments and patches of this forest along the Kenyan coast. So the forest is about 420 kilometers square. So, so that's about the forest. And uh, can you tell me a bit about the communities? that work with the Kaipepo project around the forest? Yes. The project was initiated based on the pressure that was acted by the communities living around the forest. The communities solely depend on the forest for their livelihoods and also for subsistence. And this forest, the Arabuko Sokoke Forest, harbors 
several endemic and endangered species of birds, mammals, and also several taxas of butterflies and also other invertebrates. So what happened was that there's that pressure from the local population in the protection and conservation of our natural heritage came up with the idea on how to provide an alternative livelihoods for these rural populations who have been affected by poverty. So this was how the butterfly farming was introduced. So the communities that live around this forest, the 420 kilometers square we are talking about, supposed to benefit in a way from this forest for them now to appreciate the existence of this forest. For the management of the, this heritage also to win the support and also to change the perception of this local population in helping us protect this heritage. So that was how the butterfly industry was introduced. The local population to accept and to embrace in a way for them also to benefit from this forest. To see that instead of clearing this forest for settlement or for agriculture, they can benefit from this forest as well. So it was an alternative livelihoods for the local adjacent population that was introduced in the name of butterfly farming. Right, because before 1993, um, I read from from the website that a lot of the traditional work that would have uh, that has been happening in the area are things like farming and charcoal trading. But there was also some logging going on for kind of additional income for the communities. And I think I read on the website that there was a perception from some in the community that the forest was kind of like a, a, a dead area in terms of economics because they couldn't use it for farming. So they weren't deriving an income before the butterfly farming project kind of really began. And that the project has really helped them improve their their uh, income without needing to resort to logging and in particular illegal logging to supplement their normal incomes. Is that right? Yes, that is very true. That's what I said. There was that pressure either for settlement, for agriculture, or for illegal activities, subsistence farming from the forest. So this project was aimed to reduce that pressure. It is not that 100% will reduce this or will stop immediately, but it was a gradual transformation and changing the perception of the local population on how they feel and see this heritage. Other than seeing it as kind of a dead forest, just to clear for farming or to get in the forest to do bushmeat hunting or illegal logging or charcoal burning, why can they now also now embrace this aspect of butterfly farming? In a way, these activities of farming will have no impact and either on the natural environment and also on the butterflies in the forest. So through this process of butterfly breeding and embracing this in bat, uh, in butterfly conservation will also help them in food security in that once we try now to propagate these insects, especially the butterfly, will help them in pollination and, and then indirectly uh, in will help them at least to avoid food security for them to get better yields. So can you tell me a little bit about the butterfly farming process? Um, I think from the website it mentions that there is some collection of wild butterflies, but then they are bred and reared uh, in, in nets. Is, is that about right? Yeah, I said initially, you know, in before 1993, when the project was initiated, was started, this was something that's completely strange, was something new to the local population, and also generally in Africa. We also need to identify the host plants that the level stage of the, each of the butterflies we feed on. So after, after cumulatively working on this, after you have tried several research and also demonstrations, 
and the plant that is successful that is this species of plant. That it is from there onwards now the scientists decided now to scale it down. Our scientist was compelled to simplify and also will be adopted by the local population in a simplified version. Because we need to identify the butterflies undergo different stages in the life cycle. And each and every butterflies have different belong to different families and different genus. So after clustering these into different families, into different genera and the different orders and also into different species, then the second process now is now to identify the level host plants, the larvae, the caterpillars of the different butterfly species. So after these findings, it was now shared to the public. Yes, the scientists have identified the first plants, but the scientists know these plants in the scientific names or the botanical names that matter. So you need now to go to the ground to share with the rural population because in their own language, they also name these plants. So you identify these plants, you ask them, this is a plant, what do you call in the local name? So they will say now they will give you the name. So that name now, they will now link up with the butterfly that feeds on that plant. So that was how initially it was started. Then after four years, around 1998, some of the farmers decided to pick up. Some are quick, some are somehow slow, because it's something that new, and this butterfly breeding entails a lot of science. So to bring them at that speed was difficult. So the project was trying now to introduce things piecemeal. The transformation was slow and gradual. So what happened was that in back in 1999-1998, towards 1999, the project decided now to take now the whole breeding process to the farmers, because these plants, the host plants, have been now planted on their farms. Initially, it was inside the forest. Now the seedlings, the nurseries of these host plants, now were moved to the butterfly farmers' farms. So once you have the host plants, then the butterfly, the female butterflies, will come to deposit the eggs there. Then they will be able now to monitor the adult butterfly. They associate now the adult butterflies with the level, and this level also they undergo what we call self-instance. The instance normally change six times before they transform to pupa. So it is now at this pupa stage when the farmers collect and delivers at the Kipepeo Butterfly Project. We are dealing with almost 800 farmers, those who are living around Arabuko Sokoke Forest. These 800 farmers, these have been divided into 26 groups based on the locations. So from the locations, the butterflies farmers decided now to appoint or nominate a representative. During the market days, we normally and we normally interact with around 25 to 26 individuals representing the 800 farmers. So after the consignment of reaching out the clients, supposed to be now feedback that out of the species air, the hundred species you said. 98 were in good condition, two were bad. We are supposed now to prepare an invoice based on the viable quantity of the people that have reached out the destination. After we have received the invoice and the payment, then based on the records we have for the farmer's production, we will start now paying the farmers based on whatever that has been delivered by each and every individual farmer. That's such a, an involved and an amazing 
process. And I can see that it would require quite a lot of expertise by the people at the market and also the the 800 farmers because they, they need to be able to identify, you know, which species they have, but also at what stage to to make sure. Because I can imagine when, when you're working with a, a live um, creature like these butterflies, it's they're very perishable, they're very sensitive. So you need to be able to act really quickly and you need to be able to identify, okay, you know, I need to keep an eye on this species because they're at this instar and soon they will pupate. So I need to make sure I, I harvest them very quickly. I'm, I'm wondering if any new knowledge has been gained from the farmers because they're working so closely with these butterflies. Has anything been, been learned about these different species? It's good that you have asked that a very good question. We have some farmers who have been actively involved in the butterfly breeding since the inception of the project back in 1993. They have lived with these insects to the extent that some of us, like Myself, as a scientist, whatever, whatever we have been taught in class, whatever we have been doing in the lab or in the field, we normally rely on these farmers. We call them the encyclopedia movie because they have lived with these creatures to the extent that at the moment, some of the farmers can identify the sexes of these species at the pupa stage, based on the behavior of the pupa and also the size and the shape, the abdominal shape of the pupa. And as a researcher, I decided to investigate this and I came to find out that I approved that it is 100% correct. The other thing was that the seasonality issue, the farmers were able to tell us which species of the butterfly is good to breed during this month and not in this month. With a proper justification, they will tell you that if you breed, we have been breeding this butterfly species for this month, but the survival rate for this butterfly species is zero. Yes, the, the egg will, will be laid, they will transform to caterpillar, but from caterpillar to pupa, there will be mass mortality rate especially during this month. Then if you try to work on that, on seasonality aspect of it, we came to find out that whatever they have been telling us is true. It is only that they are illiterate, their findings have not yet been documented, but they have been living with this creature for almost over 25 years, and they have mastered the behavior based on the seasonality. In the, during the dry, dry spell, they can tell you that you can you are not allowed, it's not good for you to breed this species, but it is advisable for you to breed this species based on their findings. They will tell you about the humidity, they will tell you about the temperature, they will tell you about the rainfall. So all these factors, if you try now to add up together, then you'll find out that yes, their advice and the early warning system, the early warning uh, reports they normally give works in hand with whatever that will going to happen. For example, in Kenya, we normally experience around two seasons. There's a season of completely dry, dry weather condition, and there's a season of completely painful, wet and cold. So what happens is that the farmers will be able now to tell you that for them to maximize their production, they are supposed to breed 
during this period. If it is four months, three months, they will tell you. And then within that month, they will be able now to identify which species of the butterfly they're supposed to breed. So this will depend on how the behavior of the butterfly, how they're able to adapt to that weather condition, and what is the mortality or the survival rate. So in Arabuko Sokoke Forest, for example, we have identified 270 different species of butterflies. This is of commercial value. So the butterflies also have been clustered into three by the farmers themselves because they went to utilize the production and also gain optimum yield from their production for them to sell and to get the money. So they will tell you, in this all of months period of one year, in January, February, March, we'll be able to breed these species of butterfly because they can survive, they can withstand this condition, they can stand this harsh condition. So they have clustered also the butterflies into those families, those categories, based on the climatic condition of that particular time and also the season. They've really developed a lot of expertise about these butterflies since, since the start of the project. Um, that's amazing. It sounds like at least some of the butterflies are um, reared or bred from wild stock. So that's butterflies captured from the wild. And in some other animal groups, I know that capture of wildlife for things like the pet trade does put pressure on wild populations. What kind of monitoring happens to make sure that butterfly farming isn't putting a similar pressure on wild butterfly populations? That's good. In my initial assessment, I said, during the inception of the project, all the breeding activities were being done at the project headquarters, basically because the farmers were not kind of exposed to this, and this was something that was completely new to them. After that, gradually, in, 20, in 1999, everything completely changed. There is no collections of the butterfly in the forest. What exists is this. At the Kipepeo headquarters, we have several breeding cages. We have expertise. We normally monitor these butterflies. So we support the butterfly farmers, the breeders, with a parental stock. So for that genetic diversity, if we cluster the butterfly, adult butterfly into cohorts, a butterfly breeder keeps a butterfly cohorts for more than two months, then we expect that genetic diversity is somehow compromised. What happens is that the farmer is eligible to get into the forest to release those stock that he has, either the female or the male, depending on the quantity. They release into the butterfly in the forest and then capture new female butterfly. Not the male, is female. And they should not supposed to capture more than three different species. So what happens is that Kipepeo will be able now to supply them with the stock. This stock, Kipepeo has a breeding shed. We normally release the butterfly. We have the seasons of the butterfly, release of the butterfly, to replenish the stock of the butterfly in the wild. And one thing you have to know is that butterflies are invertebrates. And the butterflies have got very high fecundity level. The reproduction is extremely high. In that, a single butterfly will be able to lay almost over 200 eggs. So we are talking about a forest 
Like example, like today you get to the forest for monitoring, you hardly see any butterfly. And then after two days, you will see plenty of butterfly. So that is how fast they can multiply depending on the season. So the aspect of saying that the butterflies get into the forest, the butterfly farmers get into the forest to collect the parental stock. It used to be those days, but not now. Now what we're talking about is the butterfly, we have classed the butterfly into the groups. And these locations, because we have said we have been studying the butterfly within the Rabugo Sukoke forest, we have mastered the distributions of these butterfly species within the forest. So those communities is a certain location will be forced to breed the butterflies that survive in that condition. But others have now evolved from the money they have now generated from this butterfly sales. They were able to introduce new host plants within their homesteads, but not inside the forest, within the homesteads. Then they get to come to Kupepeo to get the stock that they want to breed. The reason as why they are doing this is that in my earlier presentation I said, there are seasonality aspect of butterflies. There are some butterflies which thrive well in a certain season. So for them not to be left out in the market, then they need now to move with the market. If the market needs these species of this particular type, they were able to participate in the delivery, support the market. Two, all the farmers have been given an identity card by the authority into the forest, one, to help in monitoring of the butterfly, to help in the monitoring of the status of the forest, to report any illegal activities in the forest, two, three, to participate in restorations and rehabilitation program. So in a way, what we are saying is they are supposed to give back to the forest. I have an amazing system that's been set up there, and I, I can see why something like this would work particularly well for, as you said, invertebrate populations, because they breed so quickly. Yes, I want to add something. Other than that, at the Kipipio, we have a research assistant whose main work is to undertake butterfly monitoring inside the forest. So we have a permanent transect in the forest to monitor the distributions and the abundance of the butterflies within Arabuko Sokoke Forest. There are some common butterfly species. In any forest, in any vegetation, in any block of uh, ecosystem, these invertebrates normally being used as an early indicators of the status of the forest. So based on this, the research assistants work that supposed to prepare a report based on the data collected from the forest. That is one. Two, based on the data that have been delivered based on the production, supposed to generate an information. And the information generator is supposed to give us that management directive on what's supposed to be undertaken, depending on the results. So far, so good. It is a clear indication that up to today, we are talking about the butterfly farming industry in Kenya, especially in Arabuko Spoken Forest, doesn't have any negative impact on the butterfly wild population. That can be verified. There's many publications that have been done on that. So we are proud of that. We have an up-to-date data system since the inception of the project, 1993 to to date, 2021. 
It sounds like the Pipeple project has has had just a whole range of really positive impacts on the communities and also in terms of improving um, just the amount of knowledge there is about the butterfly species, but also the forest itself. Uh, because it sounds like this, the research assistant who does the transects and monitors the forest, do, do you think that level of information and monitoring about the forest would have been able to happen without the project? I will say no, because I've said the project is under National Museums of Kenya. National Museums of Kenya is a government agency that have been mandated to do to undertake research the permission to the public and also natural heritage. So based on this, before even the inception of the project, there were some undertakings of these butterflies within the country. But now in the presence of Kipepeo, within Arabuko's Coquette Forest, it helped now the National Museums of Kenya that some activities have been kind of delegated to Kipepeo to undertake the research. So for the government, they're extremely excited because you have an entity on the ground that monitors not only on the butterfly, because our mandate at the moment is not only on the butterfly. Butterfly, yes, it used to be the core function. But at the moment, we are working with the community's livelihood programs. We have introduced other nature-based enterprises. We are talking about a population of almost 150,000 people. And I said earlier, it is only 800 farmers are actively involved in the butterfly. And we assume that each household have a minimum of around five people. So we are targeting a, a population of 40,000 people in direct beneficiaries. And other like installations of water, construction of schools, setting up of bursary funds, in a way to convince the local population that, yes, this is a forest. But you need now to look at this forest as a resource that helps your community. We haven't even mentioned anything about the ecological functions, the ecological benefits that they normally get from this forest, like clean environment, like rainfall, attraction of rainfall. Other than that, what other benefits? Because I'm, I said initially, the populations are 100, almost 80-something percent illiterate. How can we change this illiteracy level? One is by constructing schools and then allowing these butterfly farmers and others who are not directly involved in the butterfly breeding to take their kids to school. And then within the schools, we have a system where we introduce something related to environmental issues. And then after the schools, what happened? We have an ecotourism facility in that any visitor that visits Arabukos of the forest, a certain percentage will go to education kitty. Then through that, the community will be able now to see the history per se. So what will happen is that the attitudes and their perception towards the forest will change in that they will be able now to help us protect the forest and then they, to reclaim ownership because they are part and parcel of this ecosystem. Because they have benefited from this forest, one, through direct money, through the cash, two, other social amenities like schools, dispensaries, health facilities, Water connections, yes. What happened? So it is now upon them to see that we are receiving this development and this infrastructure expansion because of this forest. Then they are now compelled to support us in protecting our heritage. And I'd add to that that 
the project and, and the communities there are, are actually also supporting in, in some ways the communities that um, are around the places that purchase the pupae from you. The reason that I found out about the project at all is I went and visited the Stratford Butterfly Farm, which purchases pupae from the Kipepo uh, project. And I, I think a, a place like that, uh, that kind of living exhibit changes the perspectives uh, of people over here who visit places like that. The project also supports these international communities and also supports jobs internationally because that Stratford Butterfly Farm probably would not be able to exist and operate. It wouldn't be able to have jobs. It wouldn't be able to have the educational impact that it has on the local communities th that are around them. And, and I know that the project sells pupae to, to a lot of different living displays and other farm and facilities. So it's a, it's a very big impact that it sounds like the project has had in the nearly 30 years that it's been running. Without the breeders, I would say the butterfly industry would not be there. Europe, US, and also in any part of the world. The butterflies are invertebrates, and invertebrates cold-blooded creatures. They thrive well along the equator. They need good temperature for them to survive. So what happened is that the butterfly industry, the butterfly houses, the zoos in Europe and US will not be able to, to operate without the support of the breeders in the third world country. So in a way, they contribute to whatever you have said. That's 100% sure. That's why I say Stratford, especially Stratford supported this project from the beginning up to today. We have been have we had several clients but these clients, others depend, others are business-minded. Yes, we all know all of them are business-minded. But this aspect of somebody being conscious, an organization being conscious on environmental issues, and that one was Stratford. Stratford supported to prepare from the beginning to today. They stood with the farmers. During the difficulties, they supported, either by sending some donations, supporting agroforestry programs, supporting restorations, you know, in donating money. There are many, in a way, in several ways they have supported KPP. A good example was even during the COVID-19 in 2020. These things was not planned. The pandemic affected globally. It started even hitting the clients fast before even reaching out the, the breeders. So all the industries have been shut down. All the actors within the value chains, the producers, the transporters, the air freight, the cargo handlers, the butterfly veterinaries, you know, all these have been affected. And then through that, Stratford and the other organizations, through the International Association of Butterfly Exhibitors and Suppliers, were able to sit down and see how can we support the breeders because their livelihoods have been affected and they solely, solely rely on this. So they were able to make funds, to, to, to do fundraising, supported the farmers for a period of around three to four months. That is a great thing that supports because the farmers feel that, yes, we have been affected, we have been hardly hit by this pandemic. But our brothers on the other side decided to support us, for us not to abandon this program. What will happen if the farmers will abandon? There will be no butterflies in the zoos. There will be no people to be exported. If the butterfly industry will be open today, if everything, the COVID-19, everything will be lifted today in Europe, 
once we get the signals that okay you can now send the people what will happen it will take at least a month because the butterflies undergo different stages we need to prepare we need to prepare your breeding equipment where are they you have abandoned so it through that organization stratford played a very crucial role saying that we need to support the farmers by keeping them in this industry for them not to abandon this program let us support them let us supplement the income they used to get income from the butterfly what happened there's no butterfly sales now how can we chip in then a fundraising was organized the money was dispatched to all breeders in africa in far east asia in other parts of south america and they have appreciated that somebody an organization somewhere was concerned about the life so they were now they that now boosted the morale we are talking about a whole year without a shipment without exporting anything but at that particular time farmers not even abandoned that yes they have adopted another programs for their own survival two we are talking about climate change we are talking about this product good ferried from africa asia to europe or to us this good we are using air freight we are using aeroplanes there are some emissions there are the green gas emissions in a way we are now trying to cooperate that through carbon sequestration because what we are trying to do is we need to plant more trees for us to reduce now the green gas emissions if organization like strat in 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 uk supports kipepeo through restoration programs rehabilitation planting of uh, this host plant in a way what we are trying to do is indirectly support the global warming and also the climate change directly through that that's a wonderful note i think to um to wrap up on just how these relationships have been maintained over the past year so um unless there's any other final things that that you want to mention about the kipepeo project this has been a really really wonderful interview yes the projects like the other common projects has got its ups and downs we have it has its own challenges in terms of regulations in terms of the cost of shipment but what we appreciate at the moment is that without simple rural population that almost 86% illiterate and almost 90% of the farmers we are dealing with are women it has a very big impact on the rural population very very big impact since the inception of the project to date we are talking about almost over 20 million US dollars that have been generated through the sales of the butterflies and have been plowed back in the rural population that's a very big impact So in a nutshell what we are saying is that the project was able to achieve the objectives for one we have changed the attitudes and the feelings of the local population now there is no pressure for the clearance of the forest no and this was achieved due to that engagement both the local players and also international support through the Stratford and also the other clients were able if Israel would able to support Kipepeo by buying the product what will happen the people will have get into the forest kill everything but through that they were able to stand with Kipepeo and support the Kipepeo programs and now we are now reaping the benefits either the forest is still intact the communities have changed they are now reclaiming ownership they helping us in management of the forest because they take it as the own property now in that other than the ecological roles 
the clean environment, the clean air they breathe, the rainfall they get it. The forest also gives them that direct benefits. So they are proud to be associated with this forest. Through the Kipipe farmers, it has also changed the status of the Arambuco Sokoke forest. Arambuco Sokoke forest now is an internationally recognized forest. It has claimed several sets in 2019. It has been crowned as man and biosphere reserve by UNESCO. And at the moment, also through National Museums of Kenya and other like-minded organizations, they are trying to push it to be considered as a World Heritage Site and by UNESCO. So all these recognitions was due to the butterfly activities and also the support from the international community. That's great. Thank you so much again, Hussein. This interview made me reflect again on the varied forms that conservation projects can take. In places like here in the UK or in North America, many projects take the form of protections for an area against human interference or interaction. People are encouraged to look but not touch. And this can create some level of conflict with people wanting to walk or play there being discouraged from doing so. Then there's the perennial conflicts between those who want to pick flowers and those who want to strictly leave them for the bees. Then there's one of the more serious conflicts between conservation projects and communities can come up in the restriction of development. So protecting meadows and forests can mean that fewer or maybe just more expensive houses can be built, for example. But usually these protections do not impinge on the you know, real current livelihoods of the community. But this isn't true everywhere. Protections for the Arabuco Sokoke Forest is one such situation where before the project began, there was considerable pressure from the community to remove protections for areas of the forest so that it could be used for things like farming or development, as uh, Hussein mentioned in the interview. The forest and protections against logging was having this direct impact on the community's ability to support themselves. So here we have this conflict between conservation and the community. But the Kaipepo project really changed this relationship and created a sustainable way for the community to interact with the forest and still be able to generate income. So this whole situation brought to my mind one of my favorite picture books, The Great Kapok Tree, which I've spoken about before on the podcast. So it's a story about a man who walks into the Amazon rainforest to cut down a tree. And as he takes a nap because of the heat, the animals of the rainforest speak to him about how they depend on the tree. When he wakes, the man leaves his axe and walks out of the forest. Now, when I was younger, this was the end of the story, and this was the limit of my view on conservation. People extract and destroy the habitats of wildlife, and so that's why we need to protect it by leaving it alone. Now that I've had more years to reflect on the story, I can start to ask additional questions. My my picture of conservation is is a bit broader and it's a bit more nuanced. So the, the questions that I ask now are, 
about why this man needed to come into the forest to begin with. Did he need extra money for his family? Was he risking being caught doing something illegal because of this need? And what was going to happen to him now that he won't have the money from the sale of all that wood? Is there some way for him to still make money from the rainforest without needing to destroy the habitat of all those creatures? Well, I hope this interview has given you a picture of how more positive relationships with the natural world can be achieved. If this episode has sparked some ideas for new ways to teach about conservation or to bring communities on board with a project, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com or get in touch via Twitter. The handle is at KN underscore podcast. And if you want to find out more about this and other community-based conservation projects, Check out the show notes at knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. I'll also be putting up a few links to the Stratford Butterfly Farm, where I first heard about the Kaipepo project. And thank you again to Hassan Aden, project manager of the Kaipepo Butterfly Project, uh, for taking the time to talk to me. And thank you all for listening. Mm-hmm.